Jesus' last recorded words in Acts chapter 1 call us to be witnesses to the most remote part of the earth. I believe Christ left us with these words because he calls us to bring the gospel to those in the South Pacific. Jesus calls us to lay down our lives, leave our homeland, and be witnesses for his name. I believe this is the call he gave us, to send and to be sent for the sake of the gospel. I believe that God calls us to lose our lives for the sake of others. I believe that this is the heart of missions. Although the Fijian Islands are beautiful and known as a tropical paradise, not so long ago, Fiji was known for their brutal cannibalism. By God's grace and the faithful efforts of many missionaries who gave their lives, the gospel has begun to radically transform this island nation. But Fiji today still has very few fully trained pastors. Poverty and lack of resources mean that these pastors rarely have any specialized training, and they are desperately needing to be equipped to care for and shepherd the people in their churches. They need to learn how to deal with everyday difficulties and problems. Fiji now has one of the world's highest suicide rates and is declaring it a national crisis. The people there are not just hungry, they are starving for answers to their questions. They are desperate to know what God says about their needs, their problems, and their heartaches. This is why we're partnering with Fiji Bible College to help train local pastors so that we can help them understand how to apply the word of God to their everyday lives and shepherd those who God has entrusted in their care. Good evening. It is such a blessing to be with all of you. Um, we, Pastor Tom and I were just talking about when the last time my family and I were here, and a lot has happened in the last three and a half years. Um, we, when we left for the mission field, we did not know what the Lord would be doing around the world um, with COVID and everything that has happened. Um, and I have a few minutes to give you a brief in, uh, ministry update in what's been happening in the Fiji, in Fiji and the South Pacific, in our lives, in the ministry before we open the word together. Um, so I just, I want to give you a quick overview. Um, it's pretty much impossible to tell you what the Lord has been doing um, in the last three, three and a half years in five minutes. So I'm just going to give you a couple highlights um, for those of you that are interested, we can spend more time together, or if there's an opportunity later on, you can see one of the ministry presentations. But tonight is uniquely special because this is the first time where I have given any type of ministry update or been in the United States while Fijians are a part of it right now. So I don't know if you knew this, but you have a bunch of Fijians in a classroom in the middle of some sugarcane fields, um, beautiful sugarcane fields, and some of my students are watching this. So they are joining us right now. Um, I told them, I said, you know what? This evening's topic is going to be one that falls in line with a class that I typically teach um, Monday morning in Fiji at 11 a.m., which is right now. So um, Bula, everybody. Um, 
It's good to see you guys. I'm going to refer to a few of them. And um, I don't talk about you guys behind your back, and I don't say anything about you that I would be ashamed of. So you're a part of this too. Um, That's the Fijians, not you guys. Um, So one of the blessings of where the Lord has placed us is that it is one of the most unassuming ministries that you could possibly ever imagine. For those of you that are familiar with what we're doing, um, one of my primary roles is to be a professor at a Bible college in Latoka, Fiji. So there are 25,000 islands spread across the South Pacific. Not including Australia and New Zealand, there are 12 million people within those islands. And if you were to hop on Google, most of you would find a beautiful place to go on vacation. But what most people don't realize is that um, there are churches and there are pastors and there are people that, um, as I was saying in the video, are not only hungry for the gospel, but when they have a problem, any situation in life, they don't want to know what man's opinion is. They've arrived at the conclusion that that is insufficient. You can come across someone on an island who, even though they might not use the language of the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, and terminology that you're very familiar with, theological phrases, that's what they're hoping for and longing for when they are hurting and when they have needs. There's a Bible college that, in the grace of God, a faithful man, Dr. Narayan Nair, started almost 50 years ago. And that school has been training pastors from all over the South Pacific, free of charge, for the last 48 years. There are over a thousand graduates spread across these islands, and when my wife and I were praying about how the Lord could use our lives, we were both passionate about missions. When an opportunity arose for us to become connected with this ministry, we thought, not only do we want to help solidify and strengthen what they're already doing, but to participate with biblical counseling equipping and help bring that and pastoral resources to the rest of the islands in the South Pacific. So um, some of the men in my class, um, Dr. Narayan Nair calls them the boys, um, and you guys aren't offended at that. Again, I'm talking to the Fijians. Out of those men, what they represent is absolutely incredible. So for example, I I hope both of you are watching this right now and not skipping class because I'm not there right now. Um, So two men from the country of Tuvalu are from the, the world's least visited country. There are approximately 12,000 people in Tuvalu and two of them are students at this Bible college. And I know you guys, the Fijians and everyone else in my class, we talk about stewardship on a regular basis. When you talk about the concept of two faithful, godly men becoming equipped and heading back to a nation of 12,000 people where almost no one else is going to be visiting to teach them the things that they're learning at this Bible college, those men are going to be entrusted with an incredibly unique privilege. And that's been part of the joy of being in Fiji at this ministry because we're not simply at this tiny little campus in the middle of nowhere. Their reach is accomplishing more than we could in missions in several lifetimes. So we have wonderful students from the Solomon Islands, from Tonga, 
Um, some joining us online from Samoa. Um, I don't want to leave any of you guys out. Um, Vanuatu, the, uh, the outer islands of Fiji. So we've had a privilege of being with them the last three and a half years. Um, I've been teaching biblical counseling and some other pastoral ministry classes, but we want to bring resources to the South Pacific so that these pastors on these islands can receive training. They can open up a MacArthur Study Bible and a couple of commentaries and be able to preach on Sunday morning. They have the resources to be able to understand the Word of God so that when something happens on their island where they might be the sole authority, they are not merely giving their opinion, but they are presenting the Word of God. So it's been an absolute joy. Um, in addition to the joys, which it's all mingled together somehow, we've had a volcano in Tonga, which nearly caused a tsunami that could have potentially wiped out a lot of Fijian coast, but there is um, a category four or five cyclone which somehow prevented that tsunami from wiping out our house in the providence of God. Um, we've been lost at sea, which is a longer story. Um, we have nearly lost our daughter due to a bug bite. Um, we have gotten used to a lot of bugs, a lot of ants. Taj is incredibly good at sweeping ants every morning. Um, and flooding and all of these things that we weren't used to um, when I lived in Texas years ago or being in California. Um, but the Lord's proved faithful through all of that. So even though that's an incredibly brief synopsis, and you're probably like, wait, what? To half of that stuff, um, volcanoes and um, things that are just less familiar to us in this part of the world, um, the common thread throughout all of that is the faithfulness and providence of God. So by the grace of God, we can tell you that um, we are not discouraged. You know, we've had moments where we've been, we've been more um, attuned to our dependency upon the Lord than ever before. And it's been one of the sweetest seasons um, of our lives. So um, as I close this portion of it, I just want to thank you. Um, I want, even though you're not there with us during these particular joys and trials, if it weren't for you, we would not be able to be there. And this is not our ministry. Most importantly, it is the Lord's ministry. But you are very much just as significant as we are being on the field. We literally could not do this without you guys. Um, so students in class, I often refer to some people that you've never met before, but somehow they answer a lot of prayers. Um, the cameras aren't on them. And I, that's a good thing. And I told them, you have no idea who these people are because you can give all the glory to God. So we thank you for being a part of what the Lord is accomplishing in the middle of nowhere in Fiji. So I'm thankful for all of you. Um, if we have a chance to give you a hug later, we would love to. But we thank the Lord for you, and I want you to know that. So this morning, we are going to take a look at Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to look at the purpose of life. Go ahead and turn with me. We are going to look at Philippians 3 verses 1 through 11 to get the full context of our passage this morning. Actually, this evening. I'm on Fiji time, apparently. 
And then we're going to focus on verses 7 and 8 tonight. So most people in the world are continually asking questions. Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? And there are three primary reasons that you are here, why you are alive today. And I want you to see three specific goals for your life. To trust Christ, to know Christ, and to worship Christ. Let's begin in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In the first seven verses of chapter three, Paul included a warning to the Philippians. There was a group of people who were teaching that doing good things would help you get into heaven. This is called legalism. The true gospel is actually the exact opposite of legalism. And Paul explained that nothing can save us except for Christ. And every single culture around the world has some type of an idea of what makes you a better or worse person before God. For Paul, he gives us the list of things that he thought could once save him. Look back at verse 5. He was circumcised the eighth day. He was of the nation of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And at this time, culturally, everything was connected. This means that Paul would have had wealth, power, connections, family approval, high social standing. He would have been incredibly well-respected and liked by virtually everyone. And when they saw him, they would have likely thought that based on the outside, they would have thought he was perfect. One of God's favorites, a sort of religious royalty. 
If salvation were attainable by personal actions and outward obedience for God, then Paul would have been set. But that brings us to verses 7 and 8 where we're going to focus tonight. Paul says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So the first goal we're going to look at in verse 7 is to trust Christ. Paul is saying that there is nothing that is worth trusting in other than Jesus Christ. So why would Paul be so quick to abandon everything that he had once trusted in? What he was against was the idea that that whole list of attributes all of those good works, that those could somehow make him acceptable and good enough in the eyes of God. In coming to Christ, he had been faced with the shocking reality that he actually still needed a savior, despite looking perfect on the outside. Do you know what Jesus called Pharisees like Paul? Whitewashed tombs. Think of that image for a second. What does a tomb contain? Bones, death. The tomb smell nice after a body has decomposed within it? No, I can't think of anything more graphic. If, if anyone were to call me or any one of you a tomb, that's incredibly graphic. But that's what Jesus called the Pharisees, just like Paul. They were beautiful on the outside and dead, spiritually, on the inside. In verse 7, Paul says those things. He was referring to his heritage and obeying the law. And then in verse 8, he says, all things are counted loss, referring to every single thing apart from Christ. Why? We see it in verse 7. Paul used the past tense to refer to the moment of his conversion. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. The moment he was saved was the moment that he realized that his impeccable resume was worthless. It had no value. But could you imagine what it would have been like to be Paul on the road to, Ma to Damascus thinking you're doing everything you possibly could to be pleasing to God and then he says, why are you persecuting me? He realized that he actually never knew God. Paul realized that his legalism and trying to use external works had not brought him any closer to God because he was not good enough. And now in verse 8, Paul transitions to the present tense where he says, I count all things to be lost. So in verse 7, he says, I have counted. In verse 8, he says, I count. And what he's saying is that none of his religious achievements or efforts to keeping the law mattered to God before he was saved. But after salvation, literally everything else in life is still worth less than knowing Christ. 
It's his way of saying, why in the world would I waste any of my time, my energy, my effort, any of my affection on any of the things in this world that are not eternal? Why would I ever place any trust in my actions that were incapable of saving me in the first place? This is absolutely radical thinking. It's a complete change of heart and a new way of seeing what matters most. One of my favorite missionaries that many of you are familiar with is Jim Elliott. Probably his most memorable quote is that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'll say it again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. We lose as in we stop valuing worthless temporary things, and what do we gain? We gain Christ. He found something so motivating, so life-changing, that it catapulted him into this incredible life of service, sacrifice, and suffering, not out of striving, but out of sheer love. So how did Paul now evaluate the things that he once treasured? We can take a quick glance ahead to the end of verse 8 to see Paul's perspective on this. He counts them as rubbish. The word rubbish literally means trash or even dung. Not something to even be somewhat desirable. There was no longing. There was no looking back. Do you remember what happened to Lot's wife when she was called to leave Sodom and Gomorrah? A lot of us remember that because it's actually quite memorable and at the same time terrifying. She was turned into a pillar of salt. I remember as a child thinking, what in the world could be so serious? What sin would have to be committed that when you disobey that one sin, you get turned into a giant pillar of salt? That's, ter that's a terrifying Sunday school lesson. If we're talking about first-time obedience in the home, <laughs> what God took seriously was Lot's wife's heart. When she was looking back to Sodom and Gomorrah, there was some type of longing for what she was called to leave behind. Is that a serious sin? Well, God does not change, and even though the consequences may differ, his heart remains the same over his desire for our affection. Paul views everything he left behind as worthless. He declares with resolve in his mind that they are rubbish so that he may gain Christ. It's really interesting that the word for loss in this passage that Paul uses only appears in two passages in the New Testament. The first time is when he's talking about the time that he was shipwrecked at sea and the crew had to throw the cargo overboard. The second time that he uses this word for loss is here in this passage. It's almost as though when Paul was writing this, he had the concept of abandoning cargo. 
In, in Fiji, this is actually a very common part of life. Um, I, I know for my students that are watching, I know for us as a family in our own local church, um, we've become familiar with this where we live in the middle of the South Pacific where storms can pick up out of nowhere. Waves can become fierce. Uh, nearly everyone in the church in the Bible college knows someone who has either been in a shipwreck or lost at sea. And if a ship is being weighed down in dangerous waters, what do the sailors need to do to keep the boat from being weighed down? They toss the cargo. The crew will abandon anything necessary so that they will not sink. And if a crew makes it safely to shore in the midst of a deadly storm, do you think they mourn the loss of those goods if their own life is saved? No. They don't mourn the goods that they cast overboard as long as their own life is spared. In the same way, Paul has no mourning over the things that he had lost. Even though his life was hard, his joy was complete. So, I, I want to ask you, what are you holding on to? Is there anything that you might regret casting overboard? With Paul, it was his former life that was like the cargo that needed to be thrown overboard for his own life to be saved. To many people, they would have held on to the things that Paul treasured. If you had a giant barge, a ship, that could hold shipping containers, and what you were transporting was a pile of rocks, an enormous pile of rocks, and you pulled up to a port, and someone said, hey, you know what? I, I see your ship is full, but we actually have this whole area full of diamonds, but it's, a, it's available for whoever wants it. Do you have space available? How many of you would say, no, uh, I'm, I'm really sorry. I already, I already have a bunch of rocks. Uh, I was, was going to make some concrete later on, and uh, I really like concrete. So in, find the next guy. Or how many of you would say, you know what? Where can I dump these rocks? It would be foolishness to take the things of lesser value and to hold on to those with such admiration and affection while we turn down something of infinite value. And what's incredible is that it's easy in that scenario, but for us, this is not a hypothetical situation. Why is this so much harder for us? Some of you might think, well, I, I, I have a pedigree like Paul's. I grew up in the church. I lead a small group. I read Christian books. I memorize books of the Bible. And all of these are good things, but ultimately, with God, it comes down to your heart. Those things have no intrinsic value in and of themselves. The difference is whether or not your heart has been regenerated. If you are not saved, there is absolutely nothing that you can do to please God. 
God cares about the motivation of your heart. And for Paul, he didn't stop doing good works, but he did stop trusting in and depending on those for his righteousness. He abandoned his old way of thinking that following the law would help him to earn salvation. Paul wanted the Philippians to trust in Christ alone and count everything other than Christ as loss. That brings us to our second point. So the first goal is to trust Christ. The second is to know Christ. Paul wanted them to value Christ above everything else so that knowing Christ was their highest priority. Back in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul didn't walk away from this old life to more spiritual uncertainty. He found something that was far greater than what he could have ever had. And this is the only passage where Paul uses the personal expression, my Lord. Often when Paul was writing, he would refer to his audience and say, our Lord. He would include the people he was writing to, but in this passage, it is intensely personal. He is expressing the intensity of his feeling, which is a 180 degree turn from what he had before previously when he had it all externally but was dead inside and now he is alive and he considers everything else other than Christ as loss. To know and to be known by God was worth giving up everything. The word knowing here in the Greek, the word gnosis, which is a seeking to know, an inquiry, an investigation, it's the same concept as being compelled to find out something or find out something about someone. So who are you pursuing? It's Jesus Christ. How can you know Jesus Christ? Well, in any relationship, to know someone, you have to talk to them and you have to listen to them. You have to know what they like, how they feel, what they want, Know what they love. For God, or for Paul, God actually audibly spoke to him, at least on the road to Damascus, but how, how can we know God and speak to him today? How can we hear the voice of God? There are four practical ways to know Jesus Christ, and the first is to read your Bible. It's incredibly simple. I can't tell you how easy this is, yet how neglected this spiritual discipline is. This is how God actually speaks to us. But we have the privilege where we have the Word of God, probably multiple copies of the Word of God, where we can memorize and meditate. We dwell on Scripture to bring out the application of it in our lives. That's the first way to know Christ. The second is to pray. This is how you can speak to God. Paul calls us to pray without ceasing because God is readily available at any given moment of the day to listen to you. I have no idea what makes me worthy enough for God to listen to me except the worthiness of Christ. 
He has given me his honor where he would speak to and listen to a wretch like me. And no offense, but also a wretch like you. He's ready, willing, and available. How often do we neglect speaking to him? The third one is fellowship. You cannot grow in an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ apart from experiencing the fellowship of the body of Christ. And that's what we're doing this evening. And then fourth, through evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism is about worship, ultimately. You are showing honor to our Lord and Savior, lifting up Jesus for all to see. And when you evangelize and disciple, you are proclaiming the good news of the gospel, sharing Christ with others, helping them grow in spiritual maturity to walk with Christ. But I, I do want to take a couple minutes to point out that there is a difference between knowing about Christ versus knowing Christ intimately. There are many people who simply know about Christ. And no offense to Texas. I love Texas. But I remember when I lived here, everybody and their dog went to church. That I would talk to a neighbor and they'd say, yep, yep, I go to church, I go to church, I'm good, I'm good, and then that would be it. They didn't want to talk about anything else regarding the things of the Lord. And I remember thinking like, wow, there are a lot of Christians here. So many people just knew about Christ. There was this level of familiar, familiarity that I think bred content. And I would think if you're here at this church where you receive the teaching that you do, I would assume that you know Christ intimately, but whether it's you here or many that are around you on a day-to-day -day basis, there are a lot that just know about Christ because they grew up in church, they heard about Jesus, maybe they even read the Bible, maybe they even do the four things that we just talked about, like a checklist. But truly knowing Christ is valuing and worshiping him above all else. The rich young ruler knew a lot about Christ, but he did not know him as his Savior. What does it mean to know Jesus Christ? Well, before his conversion, Paul knew all about God. He knew the law better than most. He knew how to follow the law. He likely taught the Old Testament, understood it. He could quote it. He could point out who followed it well and who followed it poorly. But it was a different kind of knowledge. To know Christ like he does after he was saved is to have fellowship with Christ. It's not theoretical. It's intimate. This knowledge is not simply no facts about Jesus, but it's personal, dynamic, meaningful. It's a relationship with him. And it's made possible through faith. In my preparation of this message, I came across a sermon by Jonathan Edwards that I think is particularly helpful. He explained the difference between natural and spiritual understanding. Natural knowledge is knowledge that's simply information in your head. Spiritual knowledge moves from your head to your heart. 
Anyone can have a rational knowledge of religious things. Non-believers can go to universities. They can get degrees and take classes on religious studies and even study the Bible. Someone can attend church their entire life and even agree with the teaching of God's word without ever truly knowing Christ. Natural knowledge is learning about God, but without ever submitting your life under the authority of Jesus Christ and being conformed to his will. This is a version of checklist Christianity. With an absence of personal relationship and connection with the Lord, you might even look to behavior modification to provide validity for your faith. You might wrongfully compare yourself to others to gauge how you might look to God. But if this is you, if it's only natural knowledge, you don't know God and God doesn't know you. In complete contrast, spiritual knowledge is so much more than this. It comes from the illumination of our minds and a regeneration of our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And spiritual knowledge doesn't just stop with changing your thinking. It penetrates the deepest corners of your heart. This is the sense of the heart where you see, taste, and feel. It's not merely academic. It's life-changing. But this is where there's actually a warning for you. If you know the truth but are not changed by it. If knowledge of Jesus Christ does not transform our hearts, it actually makes our condemnation greater. Hearing sermons at church, studying the Bible, learning doctrine, all of these things should lead us to a greater spiritual knowledge and deeper worship. The purpose of knowing God, the reason we want to learn more about Christ is that we would grow in our love, which will ultimately transform the way that we live. And the beauty of knowing Jesus Christ in this way is that you're giving up a list of duties which cannot save you, and you're exchanging that for the most intimate relationship that you could possibly ever have. Paul doesn't draw a distinction between doctrine and Christian living. A true Christian lives according to what they believe. There is no separation. You hear it, you believe it, and then you live it. God uses our minds to allow us to understand the glorious things of him, the glorious truths of the gospel. But this must impact our hearts and transform our affections. Jonathan Edwards writes, There can be no love without knowledge. It's not according to the nature of the human soul to love an object which is entirely unknown. So in other words, we rarely fall in love with something that we don't know anything about. Think about the teenagers. So, sorry teenagers here. I don't know if any of you have a celebrity crush or someone that you think, oh my goodness, this person is so dreamy. Whatever attributes they have about them, you admire them. And to not only pick on those teenagers, but men, how many of you memorize entire rosters of football teams, of baseball or basketball teams, and say, oh my goodness, Luka Doncic, Dak Prescott, it, who, who, these, all these um, phenomenal athletes that we fall in love with, and 
If you were to see any of them, if you see from the time when I was here, Dirk Nowitzki at a restaurant and say, oh my goodness, I know everything about you, I know you. How would he respond to you? He'd probably say, depart from me, I never knew you. <laughs> you may know everything about him, but there is no relationship. You do not have a relationship with those people that you memorize facts about and just have intellectual knowledge of. If you just come to church to hear doctrine and it only lands in your mind but doesn't transform your heart, your actions, your emotions, your love, your daily life, and ultimately your worship, then you have a problem. If this is the case for you, then this is where you will receive condemnation instead of salvation. But when you come as someone whose heart is illuminated by the work of the Holy Spirit and you hear doctrine, it moves you and stirs you and you are transformed from the inside out, that's when you have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Knowledge of Jesus should convict you of sin, should make you long to see his face, to know his ways more, to put yourself in his path, to worship and to know him. It's like Zacchaeus who would climb a tree and he would give away all that he had in obedience to listening to Jesus Christ. I wonder how often that's the case for us when Pastor Tom or one of the other pastors is preaching and it stirs you inside and the Holy Spirit convicts you that you respond in that type of radical obedience. I, I, I know even for my own soul, I think it's very easy to become familiar with incredible, deep, rich doctrines and then just leave them there without it actually leading to a transformed life. I, I, was, I was encouraged and convicted when I was going through Exodus, Exodus 33, 11, Moses wanted to see the glory of God. And do you know the relationship that God had with Moses? Exodus 33, 11 says that God spoke to Moses just like a man speaks to his friend. Do you have that type of intimate relationship with Jesus Christ where you speak to him and trust him as a friend and through his word, he speaks to you? Like Enoch, who sought God, he walked with God, and he pleased God, eventually, so that God simply took him. I find that to be absolutely fascinating. I wish we had more on Enoch. Or like the Apostle Paul, that you cannot resist your longing to be near him and to know his ways, regardless of the social cost, regardless of the financial cost, regardless of your career or personal ambitions. This is what true spiritual knowledge really is. This is knowing God and being known by him. And maybe for some of you, maybe you've sat up at night and you've wondered, are you even really saved? Maybe you've wondered if this is all there is, if your current state is as good as it gets. You might have thought, do I really know God? Does God really know me or am I being self-deceived? Maybe you've been working so hard to be a good Christian 
that you feel like you're failing. You might look around at everyone else at church and wonder, why are they doing well, but I'm struggling? Is it possible for you to have assurance, for you to really know Jesus Christ and to be known by him in an intimate way? Paul is saying that it is possible. He knows God in an all-consuming, incredibly intimate, tangible, life-altering way. And it's so compelling and fulfilling that nothing else compares. This is possible for Paul, and it's possible for us to know Christ in the same way. If you're sitting here this evening and you feel like you don't know Christ intimately, it could actually be because you might be struggling with ungodliness. And that sounds like a big deal because it is. Ungodliness can be as simple as going throughout your day without thinking about God, without acknowledging Him, without submitting to His will. And that's why praying without ceasing is such a significant part of the spiritual disciplines that we were talking about earlier. You cannot expect to thrive in your relationship with Jesus Christ if you're not praying, reading your Bible, sharing the gospel, and are enjoying fellowship in the context of the local church. I, I've heard it put one way that the Christian life is just like trying to run up a down escalator. I used to do that as a kid all the time, and it was incredibly dangerous. But beyond that, it was hard. If you stop, you will continue to go where the escalator goes, and that is down. It's the spiritual life. It's, it requires sweat and effort. The great Puritan John Owen reminds us in the mortification of sin that you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. These spiritual disciplines are one of the greatest means of grace because they are the way in which you grow in a deeper personal knowledge and close, close friendship with Christ. And maybe you're hearing this and saying, great, Michael, I'm all in. I want that. I've always wanted that. I've had moments or hints of that, but I want it like Paul had it. How do I get from here to there? And the answer is consistent, faithful feeding of your soul. Stuart Scott explains that this is not only the mortification of sin, and this is crucial. I don't want this to only become discipline and lead to drudgery, but it is vivification. Vivification, not only is a fun word to say, but it is living unto God and walking in newness of life. To know God, to understand God. You fear him, you love him, and trust and obey God with delight. Those who long for God spend their whole lives in daily pursuit of him. When we read the letters of Paul, we see that he was incredibly intentional about his walk with Christ. He was aggressively killing sin. He was getting rid of anything that could have possibly stood in the way of his relationship with Christ or anything that could distract his heart. If you want to know God, you have to abandon all else and chase after Christ, not out of duty, but with joy and delight. It's just like the one who finds a treasure in a field, who sells all that they have, and with joy 
receives the treasure. I know sometimes this life can be hard and you can just go through the motions of ministry just trying to get things done because there's a lot to get done. But if that's the case for you, I would take that before the Lord this evening. That there is joy in knowing Christ. So the first goal is to trust Christ. The second is to know Christ. And the third and final goal is to worship Christ. And if you trust Christ and truly know him, you will worship him. Let's look again at verse 8. When Paul says, he counts all things as lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, that is the language of worship. To know Christ is to worship him. You cannot separate doctrine from worship. Theology is for everyone because worship is for everyone. It says, A.W. Tozer says, theology leads to doxology. Understanding God rightly leads to worshiping him rightly. Growing in our knowledge of biblical doctrine is necessary for us to worship Christ more fully. And what is worship? As many of you know, it comes from the old English word worth-ship. The most common Greek word in the New Testament for worship shows reverence or bowing down to God. And a second term for worship is to serve, to minister. And we see both in Matthew 4.10, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. To worship is to attribute worth to something. It's a reverent devotion and allegiance pledged to God. And you worship whatever you deem to be most valuable. It's showing honor to God when you worship him by thanking him and finding joy in him. When you worship Jesus Christ, what you're doing is you're attributing worth to him. You're showing that you value him. Your worship does not determine his value, but it's simply an acknowledgement of his infinite value. You worship God when you show appreciation to him, having a heart of gratitude, gratefulness, and thanksgiving. It's not only an attitude of reverence or a posture of your heart, but also an action of service to the God who is worthy. And worship begets more worship. The more you worship, the more your heart will desire to worship. If that's confusing, it basically means that if you're in a rut, same concept of inertia, it's going to be hard to get out of that rut. That's part of fellowship. Find a brother or sister in Christ who you trust, who you know is mature in Christ, and be open and honest with them and say, I am struggling with this. I need help. And as you are brought back in to a right relationship with the Lord, the more you worship Christ, you'll find that you find more joy in obeying Christ and worshiping him, and that will continue to grow. It will become evident in your life. One of my favorite biblical counseling professors is Ernie Baker. This is um, not intended to be a plug for next Saturday. Um, I believe that starts at 9 a.m. Um, <laughs> he taught us so much about the heart and worship and one of the things that he continually emphasized was that the problem is that all people have is a problem of worship. Why do we struggle with sin? Wrong worship. 
You will serve the one whom you worship. Many of us struggle with sin because we are sitting on the throne of our hearts instead of having the right posture before God. Imagine a tiny Lego-sized throne on your heart. I mean, it'd have to be pretty small to fit in there. What is currently sitting on that throne? I think for a lot of us, we'd love to say Jesus Christ. But practically speaking, what is your highest priority when you wake up in the morning? What fills your mind before you go to sleep? What do you find it easy to talk about with your spouse or with your friends? Those are likely the things that are consuming your worship, and those are likely the things that are sitting on that throne. I had no idea that the, the idol of comfort was sitting on the throne of my heart until my precious son was born seven years ago. And then I realized that I really liked sleep. <laughs> and at 2 a.m., he would knock that, knock that idol off of that throne, and I would get angry. Then at 2.30, he'd knock it off again, and 3.45, he'd knock it off. And then I realized that there was something else that was sitting on that throne, and that spot was supposed to be Jesus Christ. Something as mundane as comfort could actually be replacing the affection of your heart so that instead of worshiping Christ and being consumed with him, you get distracted with whatever it might be in your life at that particular time. Why do we not grow in sanctification? Why are we not more like Jesus Christ? It's because of wrong worship. It is misplaced worship because we are not willing to give up our sinful desires and submit our heart and will to Jesus Christ. And Dr. Baker writes, if you want help with your stubborn desires, you must replace them through the power of the Holy Spirit with superior desires. And I believe that happens through worship. So if false worship is the problem, then true worship is the solution. So how do you worship Christ? You meditate on, you sing about, you rejoice in, you pray to, you are thankful for, you read about how great and awesome Jesus Christ is, and you live to the glory of your heavenly Father. And true worship is a surrendering of all of yourself to do everything to the glory of God. And what are the tools and resources that we have to worship Jesus Christ? First of all, we have Scripture. We have hymn books. We have solid Christian music that guides and shepherds our hearts. If you don't know what to pray, read through the Psalms and pray through the Psalms. Let Scripture guide you in the process of worship. We have incredible theology books. One of the things I'm trying to do in Fiji is to try to bring what we have here in the States to these islands in the middle of nowhere that any one of you at any given day has access to. Utilize those resources. You have no idea what you have the privilege of right before you. I had a Hebrew professor that used to give a hypothetical situation when we were parsing Greek, and he would say, well, one day if you're on a deserted island... And then here I am, one day on a deserted island. They actually, and students that are um, still awake at this point, 
you guys know how valuable theological resources are. Don't dismiss those as saying, well, I don't want to be puffed up with knowledge in my head. You guys heard what Jonathan Edwards said. You can take that knowledge and doctrine, and that can transform your heart. But do not dismiss that for the pastors or for the seminary guys. There are many of you that are already doing this, and you are enjoying fellowship and worshiping Christ because you're utilizing these resources that are readily available to you for intimate spiritual knowledge. And then a very basic one is creation. You can walk outside and look at a sunset and praise God as you see how awesome He is and what He has made. I, I want to ask you, why do you do the things that you do? Is it because you are worshiping Christ? Or do you do some of those things hoping that other people will see you? Jesus lovingly confronted the rich young ruler not because of his wealth, but because of idolatry. He would have looked good on the outside as well, similar to Paul. But he was worshiping wealth. Wealth was what he worshiped, and ultimately the rich young ruler did not value Christ above all else. So instead of choosing to worship Christ, he walked away with temporary wealth and a perishing soul. But as we see in verse 8, Paul did not place a high value on temporary things. He believed that there was nothing more valuable than knowing Christ. And Paul turned away from it all, just like God calls us to do. So let me ask you, are you prepared to lose all that you have? Is there something that you are holding on to that is keeping you from loving and worshiping Christ with all your heart? The sailors on the ship that are casting the cargo overboard, they don't despise the cargo but they do value life. In this sense, Paul is not a radical Christian. This is not an exemption or something that super Christians do or weird Christians do. You might say, oh yeah, that's, that's for people that are missionaries. No. One, my wife can attest to this fact, we're not super Christians, we're relatively normal Christians. And two, we could always give up a lot more. So the wealth that anyone has, your possessions actually don't matter as much as the posture of your heart before God. But are you living radically like Paul? Or do you just say, wow, Paul was a pretty intense Christian? Or do you look at a couple other people around the church and say, well, that's kind of an extreme family? They're super Christians. If anyone will follow Christ, they must count all things as lost and all Christians must do what we're talking about. You cannot expect to stay afloat if you have some treasure that you are gripping onto so tight that it'll pull you into the depths of the sea. Either you will drown with the perishing treasure or you will preserve your own soul. Paul knows this. Paul sees this, and he's warning the Philippians and warns us today that it's not worth it. Have you counted everything else as loss? 
Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Do you truly know Christ or simply know about him? As our time this evening comes to an end, I want to ask you, quite simply, is Jesus Christ your greatest affection? Is he your highest desire? For those who are not saved, Jesus Christ is your judge. But for the believer, Jesus Christ is our Lord, our Savior, our King, a friend who never leaves us nor forsakes us. And Paul gave up everything to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We have received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We've been given the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the power that transforms us into the image of Christ so that we're no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. As we become more like him, we value him, we treasure him, and we worship him. That's the point of our lives, to fear him and to obey his commandments, to be set apart to proclaim Christ with our words and deeds so that his name would be made great. And in everything we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. Paul died to self because he lived for Christ, and Paul took up his cross daily to follow Christ. His satisfaction and joy were not based on the fleeting pleasures of this world, but in the eternal riches found in Christ. And those who live for the things of this world are never truly going to be happy. They worry about losing their treasure. And for them, death is a thief. But this isn't the case for the believer. Our treasure is in Christ, which can never be stolen and will never lose value. For us, we have the opportunity to view death as a welcome friend, ushering us into the arms of the Savior we love more than everything else. It's the point of the sermon. It's also the point of our lives, that we would treasure Christ, that we would count all else as loss, that we would see the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, and that we would worship Jesus Christ, our King. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for every single person here this evening. God, I thank you for their hearts and for their love for you. I pray for them. I pray for all those in this community, even for my own heart, knowing that Satan can use everything at his disposal to try to distract us and detract us from worshiping you and worshiping you alone. I pray that you would give our hearts and eyes the ability to see things exactly as they are, to trust you, to know you, and to worship you with all that we are. We love you, Lord, and we thank you tonight. In your name we pray, amen.